Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you all. It's been a few weeks. Uh, Laura and I and the kids got to, to go back to England, see some family. And one, I'm just really appreciative of just the amazing team that just held stuff together, some great preaching, some great sermons, some great services, and all those different things. So very thankful for that. And, and so many of you have been so welcoming in saying, uh, you know, welcome back. Uh, and, and one of the questions that you've asked repeatedly is this. Do you feel rested? Well... We flew about 12,000 miles, and we traveled for about 50 hours altogether. And we did it with three kids in the middle of COVID. And we had to get four COVID tests, and they cost $800. So, do I feel rested? No. But at the same time, it was this wonderful experience. We got to reunite with some family. My parents hadn't seen my kids for a couple of years, and so the joy of spending that time together was, the better question might be this, uh, was it worth it? Was it worth all that effort? Yes, it definitely was. It was a joy to be with people that you love. And, and I grabbed a couple of photos just to share with you, just so you, feel, you can feel like you participated a little bit, you know. Not everyone's traveling internationally right now, so I just thought I'd show you a couple. Here we go. So this is this beautiful picture of the Cornish coast. Sat there in 65 degrees. I got to do this hike that I'd wanted to do for may, maybe six years. I just never quite got to do it. And so just sat there on the end. And I actually sent this picture to Dan Elliott. And I said, you know, it's going to be hard to leave this. And he sent me a message back saying, wait, what? <laughs> there was a slight panic. If you can put tone into a text, a little bit of a panic. Um, I was like, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying it's hard to move. Not, well, I'm not coming back. Um, but thank you to the person who did ask, had I left? Apparently, someone thought I'd gone. Um, and then I took this photo of uh, my mom and my dad and Gigi, who manages to get into almost every photo somehow, um, just on one of the wilder Cornish days. And then, of course, because we stayed a little bit longer than we'd planned, We ended up being there for the 4th of July. Now, as you can imagine, 4th of July is a little bit different in England (laughs) than it is in America. For multiple reasons, right? Okay, first reason it's different. It was not 90 degrees there on that day. So, this was us grilling 4th of July, umbrella over the grill, just making it happen. Uh, we came up with a nice creative name for the day because you can't call it Independence Day when you're uh, in, in England. Obviously, it has to have some other name. So we called it uh, National Minor Conflict on an Obscure Border that Changed Nothing Day. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we did, I think we actually did a pretty good job getting into the spirit of things. We even found a flag for Laura, um, and we even put some bunting up. Now, it was a little bit easier because the American flag's the same color as the British flag, and so the bunting was easier to get hold of. But the flag was an achievement, and this was the final day that we were there. And we gathered around a table, and we talked, and we laughed, and we had those wonderful uh, conversations that you get to have alongside a ton of emotion. Anytime you live away from family, and many of you are in this boat, you you have these questions. When will I see these people again? Will I see these people again? There's a distance that is, it's it's painful. It's both a joy and a pain. And I always notice with my kids, there's there's always this tension. 
my daughter Gigi probably said about 60 or 70 times on the last day, why do we have to go home? Uh, and then I realized this, well, when we're here, she, she sees her cousins every single day. So she assumes if we lived here, that would be the case then. And I'm like, well, they'd get very annoyed with each other if that was the case. Uh, they they um, you know, have all of these different experiences. I don't work when I'm there. We're usually by the coast. And so what they're saying is we would long for this life where you don't work and we get to be on the beach every day with our family. I'm like, well, that's not reality anywhere. But there is this joy, this joy of gathering together with those people, especially around a table. We've talked over this, the life of this series about this commonality of food. There is something that happens when we gather around food that is special and distinct. It's maybe the one thing in the, the Gospels, in these narratives of Jesus' life. And if you're unfamiliar with church, that's fine. But there's these four narratives of Jesus' life. And they all seem to focus on Jesus at the table. Especially this book, Luke, that we've landed in. In Luke, Jesus is always going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. This food thing seems to, to just fit in with his life. And again, it's this one thing that maybe you and I would say, I can resonate with that. I, I actually have that experience. That is common to me as well. So much of the rest of the Bible is a mystery to us. It's a different context, a different culture. And this is this one thing that we're like, I, I can understand that. Jesus takes these table moments and he uses them in this distinctly practical way to bring in people that would not otherwise be included in this great story, this great narrative. We've used this as kind of like an anchor verse for our time. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, there is this idea that Jesus takes his time around tables and says, I'm going to pull in people for whom there has not been much good news. I have good news for people who are not used to or familiar with good news. But as I was away, I was just contemplating this little passage a bit, thinking about it, and, and it made me wonder, a question we haven't really addressed that may have occurred to some of you. It's this, like, what does that mean for us? It would be hard to categorize most of us as being poor. If you have any money in the bank whatsoever, you're in the top 25 richest people on the planet. There is something about the life we get to live that is unusual to most of the world. We, we were just uh, driving through a neighborhood in my, by my parents' house, which was somewhat impoverished, and we looked at this apartment and thought for a second how hard it would be to live in this high-rise building, uh, in a, in a low-income area through COVID. And we started to say, like, how would we feel about living there? And then we had this moment of reflection where I've got to travel to so many different developing nations, and every single one of those people would love to have lived in a place like that. We live lives that are beyond the imagination of most of the world. How do we categorize ourselves as poor? And, and if we're not poor, does that mean Jesus has nothing to say to us? And as I reflected a little bit, I started to think about this. Isn't there all sorts of poverty? Y yes, there's financial poverty. Some of us may have experienced that, but it's not most of us. But th there's also physical poverty. There's also relational poverty. There's also spiritual poverty. I was always amazed every time I would go to Haiti as a nation. I would spend time with people in church and watch as they gathered afterwards. 
No one was rushing off to go see a football game. No one had dinner reservations. There was this joy of being together. And I watched people who were relationally rich. I remember leaving one time and and calling Laura and the, the kids and saying, I can't wait to see you, but I wish you were coming here because I'm experiencing a quality of relationship that I'm not experiencing in, in America right now. There, there's different types of poverty. Maybe one of the things, one of the challenges for you and I is to say, where am I poor? Where is the lack in me? I think what this passage, what it gets to at the heart is this, that, that Jesus came for those that were willing to acknowledge that they needed him. This group of people that were financially poor, well, they knew it. They were very aware of their need for some new story, something to happen. And my question for you and I is this, is the ways that we need a new story. What if you aren't poor? Maybe it's just simply a matter of recognizing that for every single one of us, there's areas that we experience poverty in our lives. So we've got a couple of weeks left in this series. We're going to jump into this text in Luke chapter 22. Now, embarrassing confession for a pastor, I left my Bible at home, so I had to grab one from Dan Elliott's office, and it has the smallest text I have ever seen. It's borderline unreadable, so we'll just see what we can do. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. When Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how they might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. This tension has been building between Jesus and the religious leaders for weeks and for months. And now there's this moment where this writer, Luke, sets up the expectation that this tale is going to turn a little bit dark. We know that there's now Judas, this insider who is really an outsider, and and he's about to hand Jesus over to these priests. That's the context for everything we're about to read. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be that would do this thing. So, a lot in there. Let's pray before we get into it. Jesus, as we uh, look at your word that you have given us, we believe that this book came on, was breathed on by you. 
We believe that it is distinct and special. We ask that you would speak to us. Perhaps you would reveal to us some ways that we are poor when we think we're rich. Perhaps you would reveal to us some new ways in which we need you that we hadn't realized. Would you comfort those that are afflicted today? Would you afflict those of us that are comfortable? Would you take this book that you breathed on and it came alive? And would you breathe on us and make us alive in new ways? Amen. Okay, so today as we look at this passage, it's the passage of the Last Supper. We'll be taking communion again together. I know that it's not our regular rhythm. We usually take communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist on the first of the month. But how can you teach on the Lord's Supper without taking the Lord's Supper together? So if you're at home watching online, you can go and grab some elements to get ready and we'll come to this table at the end. If you're unfamiliar with it, I will explain it. Let's go back to the start of the passage. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And Jesus is about to enter into this meal that is very common, very familiar to everybody of his time. And yet he's about to do it knowing it will be his last meal knowing that he'll be eating with his followers for the last time. So my question for you to sort of warm us up a little bit is, what would your last meal be? If you were planning your own last meal, if you knew this was the last meal you would get to enjoy, what, what would you eat? Some of you are like, it's definitely steak, it's definitely bacon, there's definitely some of you that will have an idea. Some of you might say, I have no clue whatsoever. Maybe it's a sentimental meal, something you've enjoyed over the years, something you remember for your childhood. But the truth is, that most of us never know when our last meal is coming. There are some exceptions. There's a wonderful story that Eric Peterson, the writer, tells about his father, the the writer of the message, the Bible translation, Eugene Peterson. Uh, He talks about Eugene Peterson walking towards death, and he he talks about this moment where they sat down with him and and said, Dad, the rest of your life, it will no longer be measured in months and years. It will be measured in hours and days. And they watched as he ate some peach cobbler, which he loved. And he looked at them and said this, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. There was this joy of a life well-lived of a man who was eating his last meal and was very aware of this fact, but was okay, was, was at peace. That's a rarity, I think. Most of us, we don't know when that moment will come. Except societally, societally, there is this one exception to that, right? We know that historically it's been tradition for prisoners on death row to get to choose their last meal, the last thing they will eat before execution. And there's all these different stories about how people have chosen to use that privilege. There was a story that I read about one man who ordered a 12-ounce steak, three burritos, two triple burgers, a pint of ice cream, and the this just went on and on and on. And there's some odd choices that I found here. Someone chose Cheez-Its and Coca-Cola as the last thing that they would choose to participate in as a meal. Someone else regularly, uh, options were burgers and fries. And one person said, I just want a single olive. Single olive with no particular explanation. And all kinds of psychological processes have been put on on this whole thing. Why do people choose what they choose? And and is there any significance to it? Should it even happen? Some states have started to say, no, this isn't a privilege that you should deserve if you're receiving the death penalty. But, But there's one thing that all of these things have in common. What would you guess it was? 
the meal doesn't get eaten. The one common theme is this. People that are in, know they're eating their last meal, they don't eat it. They may order it, but they don't eat it. One death row lawyer, Ian Sheldon, said, I do not recall a single instance in all my career of one of my clients eating their meal. There is something about the finality of what they're walking into that says this isn't a time for eating. And just think about how that works psychologically. We know that makes sense on a psychological level. There, there is this idea that you have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system. One controls your fight and flight. One controls your rest and digest. And so when you're in that moment of tension, in that moment of stress, something about you says, I don't want to eat right now. That there is no desire to eat. Maybe you've experienced it sat on a plane in high turbulence or something like that, and they, they have these unappetizing meals. They park in front of you as the plane shakes all over the place, and, and something about you says, I don't feel like eating right now for some reason. I'm a little bit tense. I'm a little bit uncertain. We have that phrase, the food turned to ashes in my mouth. There's something about moments of grief, of stress, that we say we don't want to eat. And then that's, and that, and that's the reason I find what Jesus is about to say just fascinating. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover. The thing that we're about to do, I have eagerly desired this moment. There is something about it that is distinct and special, and yet we know that Jesus is under incredible stress. Now, as followers of Jesus, and, and again, if you're new to this, uh, let me help you walk through this a little bit. We talk about Jesus as, as being fully God and fully man. What I've found historically is this, most churches, most denominations tend to focus on one side versus the other side. Some of us trend or tend towards thinking about the divinity of Jesus. Some of us tend or trend towards the humanity of Jesus, and yet both are true. And what we see in this moment is we see a deep revelation of Jesus' humanity. In a few verses, he will pray this, Father, if you are willing Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. We see Jesus as his human self under this incredible stress, this incredible tension, and surely having no desire to eat, and yet he says, I have longed, longed to eat this meal with you. He's about to partake in something that he sees as special, as important. He's about to enter his teaching mode. He's about to show us something. So what meal is he eating? He's eating this Passover. Let's learn a little, little bit about that. What is this old meal about? Jesus is doing, <coughs> sorry, Jesus is doing something very common. Every Jewish person in Jerusalem will be doing this same thing on this day. They're about to take a meal called Passover, which was the central moment of the Jewish calendar. And so we can go back to this book, Exodus chapter 12, and, and learn a, a little bit. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
This is how you, to eat it, how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So some context to this. This group of people, sometimes known as the Jewish nation, as the children of Israel, this group of people have moved to Egypt some 300 years before this passage that we're reading. It's looked like a great relationship. It's looked like something that will benefit both sides. And it has turned from relationship to slavery. They are now stuck there. They have nowhere to go. And this, this right here is their moment of rescue. This is a story that they will tell themselves for thousands of years. This is the moment that in their lowest, in their darkest point, God, the God of the universe, stepped in and provided a way for them to escape. This is this moment of celebration. It will become deeply important to every Jewish person and still is today. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. Man, there's a ton of tension in that passage. That's like a whole other sermon to get into how we feel about that. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. In this moment, this group of people are told, when you put the blood on the doorframe, this will be how death is delayed. Death will come for all of these people, and it will not hit you if you do what you're told. And this group of people will leave Egypt. They will go out into the wilderness. They'll arrive at a mountain called Sinai. Sinai is special. It is this mountain that is special because nobody owns it. Because nobody owns this God who will come to them and say, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to give you a way to live out my life in the world around you. But it begins in this moment where the people are waiting to leave and destruction and death come. And if they do what they're told, it will pass over. And as they are obedient, the people are set free and they go out into the wilderness. And the story continues. This old meal was a celebration of death delayed. It was a celebration of the idea that death was coming, and for them, when they were obedient, it was delayed. Now, here's a question. Do any of these people believe that now they will never die? No, they don't. At some point, the same story that is true of every single one of us, the, the same story that, that we will, our lives will end in death, is still true of them. They, they don't believe that this is a permanent state. But in this moment, in this moment of risk of tension, the angel passes over when he sees the blood, and this is a celebration of death delayed. It's a good story. It's an important story. And again, it will be grounding for these Jewish people for thousands of years. And the festival changes a little bit. Some other things are added as other writers give their thoughts. Eventually, it becomes this seven-part meal with bitter herbs, with sausage, with roasted egg, with roasted lamb, with a kind of stew of potatoes and different things and a, a spring onion. And it's this celebration moment where they remember and tell themselves the story over and over again. And then Jesus is about to enter into this moment. Does he believe in this moment that death will be delayed for him? He doesn't. He doesn't. That is not the reason he is partaking in this. That is not what he's trying to teach us in this moment. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is entering into this meal knowing that death will not be delayed for him. 
knowing that he has to walk into and through death, and that is part of his story. So he then takes everything about this meal, and he's about to do what only Jesus has the privilege of doing. He's about to take this story and recast it around him. He's about to take a good story, and he's about to make it even better when it's about him. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In this moment of celebration, in this highest point of the Jewish calendar, Jesus takes a couple of the elements and says, let me tell you how these are centered around me. Let me tell you how this whole good story is now recast around me. And we have some history of seeing festivals or or special days or holidays start to be recast. This is an example that may help you grasp what's happening a little bit. Think about Columbus Day, this day that was celebrated for, I don't know how long, in October. It's this remembrance of Columbus coming uh, to America, discovering the continent. Now, in lots of places, it has been recast as Indigenous People's Day. Now, you may love that change, or you may hate that change. It's actually helpful for the illustration if you hate the change. Because think how the disciples might react to what Jesus is saying. These are good Jewish people who have celebrated this Passover day for years. It is central to everything that they know. And they've come to know that Jesus is distinct, Jesus is special. But there's got to be some sense of, wait, aren't you going a little bit far? Aren't you pushing this just a little bit? You're taking this thing that we have orientated around for the whole of our lives, and you're now saying that it's primarily centered around you? This isn't the first time, actually, that Jesus has done this. He's done this with other religious festivals. In John chapter 7, at the festival of Sukkot, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. In the middle of a festival that was celebrated by pouring out water, a water festival, Jesus says, I am the only thing that can quench your thirst. Jesus has a history of saying, all of this centers around me, whether you realized it or not. Some of you may have heard C.S. Lewis' idea that, that really Jesus' claims are so ostentatious, they're so over the top, that, that either he is mad, he is bad, or he is, he is who he said he is. The claims are so incredible that only a madman or an evil person trying to mislead people could say them unless they happen to be true in which case he really is who he said he is, the thing around which everything in life circles around. Jesus takes this festival that has historically been about death delayed, and he says, I'm now recasting it through this bread and this wine around me. This is now a celebration of death defeated. This is now a celebration of death defeated. Now, it's also about other things. It's also about forgiveness of sin. It's also about the hope of healing. It's also about multiple wonderful stories. But centrally today, I would say this is the central point, that this meal is a celebration of what Jesus will do, that when he dies and raises again, death is defeated. It's not the old story. It's a better story. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover 
with you before I suffer. I would suggest that as important as what he is doing to Jesus is who he is doing it with. He has these 12 followers that he has lived life with, and he knows that this story, that their story is going to get very difficult. He knows that their story will include brokenness, failures. Many of them will deny him. Many of them will desert him. And yet he knows that they'll need this story. He'll need this, they'll need this story of hope, of possibility. But not just them. Us as well. This is John chapter 17. Now, again, for those of you unfamiliar with the text, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're all pretty similar. John is a different writer. He gives us some different perspectives. Uh, John gives us more details about what Jesus says, and, and we're told in, in John's writing that Jesus goes into a deep prayer for all of the people that will follow him. My prayer is not for them alone. Alone, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus in this moment is doing something significant for every single one of us. At a time in his life where he doesn't feel like eating, where everything about how his body works will say, I don't desire this food, yet he eats it because he knows that it teaches us something about the way the world works. He knows it will be this meal that we can come back to time and time again in our worst moments. He sits in his worst moment in his lowest point and says, I'm going to participate in this thing because it's going to bring life to each and every one of you. And we at our lowest moments, we get to tap back into this thing that he did. We get to come and bring all of our brokenness. This is the writer Jürgen Moltmann. Hope is more than feeling. Hope is more than experience. Hope is more than foresight. Hope is a command. Obeying it means life, survival, endurance, standing up to life until death is swallowed up in victory. This central theme for Christians for thousands of years has been the idea that Jesus' death and resurrection is the defeat of death. That is the audacious claim of Christianity. It is not there is some life somewhere in some distant celestial heaven one day. It is real, practical, resurrection in a world somewhat like this in terms of its physicality. That is the hope that we are called to. It is extravagant. It is extraordinary. And the Christian faith has never been shy of proclaiming this is what we hope for. And yet each of us in our different struggles, in our different moments, have moments where that story can be so hard to believe. We have moments where we fail where we, we are broken, moments of sin, moments where relationships fall apart, all sorts of different things, and we come and we're asked to come to this table even when we don't want to be here. We're asked to come to this table and bring those things even when we're not sure this story works. Jesus, in his worst moments, sits at this table because he knows that we need it. He knows that this new meal is a better story than the old story. Death delayed is a wonderful story, but death defeated is a different kind of story. 
It is a story that each of us need. And, and so my question as we come to this table as a community is, what do you need from this story today? What do you need from it? What is it that in your life at the moment is that point that you're like, I need to believe this story, and yet maybe it's difficult? What burden is it that you are carrying? What dark night of the soul, what struggle is it that you need to bring to this table and trust that this story is big enough? We are invited to bring our stories, stories of brokenness, pain, fear, unbelief, uncertainty, lost hope, death, sickness, poverty, rejection, failure, injustice, and sin. And in that moment, as Jesus, I'm sure, felt with no desire to eat, we are invited to come to this table even when we don't feel like eating, even when we don't feel like this story's working. And we get to trust that this story is big enough. We are invited to bring them and participate in a meal we may not feel like participating in. I'm going to invite Adam and the team to come back on stage, and we're going to take a slower approach to communion. We're going to create some space for contemplation. I'm going to ask you that question again. What do you need from this story today? What is it that you're carrying? Jesus, at the lowest point in his life, walks in to this table because he knows that the end of the story is better than this moment. What new hope do you need so I'm going to ask us to pray a prayer together. Now, you're free to do your own moment of contemplation. You're free to spend some time in this short space of just having a conversation with God. But this is something that I put together for us to pray together if praying is something that you're not used to. So we're going to say this as a community. God, we do not presume to come to this table trusting in our own goodness, but in your great mercies. We are not worthy to gather the crumbs under your table, but you are the God of mercy. We ask to come to your table bringing our stories, knowing you have provided a better story through your death and resurrection. This is a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we come to this table, bringing our different stories, our different struggles, we come and we say that Jesus' story is more significant than what we are going through right now. We come believing that his death and resurrection mean something. They mean the forgiveness of sin. You, in the ways that you are broken, have the possibility of forgiveness. It means the possibility of healing. You, in your sickness, in your weakness, may experience the healing hand of God. They mean the defeat, it means the defeat of death. That that moment, that last moment, that last breath is not the end. 
it means that death is not the worst thing. It's just the thing before. I'm going to invite you friends to stand with me. For those of you that find yourself this morning feeling lost, uncertain of the pathway ahead, this table is a place of orientation. It is a fixed point of certainty. However your emotions are today, walking to this table is a proclamation of your belief in this better story. You are deeply loved, deeply and wonderfully loved. In a few moments, I'm going to pray. And as Adam and the team lead us, feel free to come and take the elements. Often we take them communally as a group. Today we'll take them individually. As you reflect on what you need from this story today. God, would you prepare our hearts to come to your table? We rejoice and celebrate at how excited you were to share this moment with your followers. Eagerly, I have desired to eat this with you, you said. You knew in this moment you were giving us a gift, something that would guide us through those darker moments. As we come to the table, would you meet us at the point of our need? Whether here or at home, would you speak to us, your children? Where there is death, would you bring life? Where there is sickness, where you bring health? Where there is loneliness, would you bring companionship? Where there is fear, would you bring peace? Where there is hatred, would you bring love? there is doubt, would you bring faith? Would you meet us, your people, in your needs? Thank you, God, that you hear our cry. As Adam and the team lead us, come when you are ready. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.